0: From the studio in Sun City, Arizona Boomer Radio presents Wealth DNA with Ron, the Ronald Naraki. Wealth DNA gives you insights and methods for increasing your net worth. Ron's experience dealing with local and international markets give him insights that can be valuable to any investor. Now, here's the host of the show, Ron Naraki.
1: Buenos dias. Buongiorno. Guten Tag. Hello. Bonjour. And, of course, Janopatkovanak. The Hungarians get the prize for the most difficult greeting. When I lived in Hungary, I realized any similarities to English were either purely coincidental or just misleading. I'd come into the office and say good morning and got the response, see ya, which I later learned was a casual hi, not see you later as I might think in English. When I saw somebody leaving the office, I would say goodbye or see you tomorrow, and they would say hallo. I assume they misunderstood the English word hello and used it backwards. I didn't correct them. Good thing, because I later learned that hello means goodbye in Hungarian, and with that I learned something about making assumptions about similarities in languages. Don't. Whatever language preference you have, I'd like to welcome you to the Wealth DNA Radio Show, and I'm honored that you're joining us today. Since it's a holiday in the U.S., so hopefully you've gathered your family around the radio player, especially the kids. Or even grandkids. We are getting a little background noise there, uh, Pete. I don't know if it's uh, if it's another uh, person clicking onto the show or what it is, but we're getting a little bit of, of uh, telephone background noise. Anyway, hopefully you have them gathered around the radio player. Now, one of the biggest challenges we have in the education systems throughout the world is that. Kids leave school and enter the job market without a skill that they will need for the rest of their lives. What's that skill? How to save and invest the money they earn. So what do they do? They spend and invest just like their parents or maybe implement what they learned from their teachers and very few schools even have a single course in personal finance. Now, since 95% of the population is not wealthy, there's a 95% chance their role models taught them the skills they'll need, the skills to never become wealthy. The moral of that story, have your kids listen to the Wealth DNA radio show instead of playing video games or watching mindless TV shows. For the past few months, we've been doing a series on alternative investments, and today we're continuing that series. In some ways, we'll go back to the concepts we talked about way back in April to July of 2012. So April of 2012, we started a series. And if you missed those shows, you'll want to go back and listen on the archive. Today, as I mentioned, is Memorial Day in the U.S., and just last week we celebrated an international Christian holiday Pentecost. Since one or both of those holidays touch a large percentage of our listeners, I thought it would be worth a couple minutes to share some insights on both. And I'll also share a wonderful 11-minute video with you that exemplifies both holidays. So let me look up that link here. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to just copy that link into the uh, chat window below the radio player. So if you're uh, on live, obviously you'll, you'll have access to that. Let me send that off. Okay, so I just sent a link over for that 11-minute video that uh, I think you'd really enjoy. Oh, isn't technology wonderful? For those of you listening by telephone or listening to the archive, just send an email to me, ron at wealthdna.us, requesting a link to the video called Revelry. I'll share my email address a couple more times during the show. Now, my multilingual greeting was a hint about Pentecost. Pentecost literally means the 50th day, and that's 50 days after Easter. The biblical story for Pentecost is that the Holy Spirit descended on people from various lands, and they spoke. When they spoke, everyone understood them in their own language. So in other words, they were hearing their own language, even though others were speaking different languages. Pentecost is about community. And as we think about our global community today, that miracle of Pentecost would be wonderful to have, that regardless of our language, others would understand us and we understand them. We may not agree with all of their opinions, but it would be a major step forward if we at least listened to and understood what they were saying. Let's also take a couple of minutes to cover some of the history of Memorial Day in the U.S., Officially, Memorial Day is on May 31st. But several years ago, the government decided that the American people would prefer to have a long weekend than an occasional holiday in the middle of the weeks. So now we celebrate Memorial Day on the last Monday of May. Now, where did it start? It started in 1866 in a small town of Waterloo, New York. No, that's not the Waterloo where Napoleon was defeated. And of course we welcome our listeners from upstate New York. In Waterloo, New York, they reserved that day to honor the war veterans. Uh, sorry, the war heroes, it wasn't just the veterans. And you may recall the Civil War in the US had just ended back at that time. A very bloody war with a lot of lives lost with Americans fighting against Americans. Now history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. Here we are in 2013, and it appears a similar civil war is taking place in Syria. Let's hope they take a lesson from Waterloo, New York, in the near future. In two years after Waterloo's initiative, that tradition was formalized. A day was set aside to remember those war heroes, and it was called Decoration Day since it had become a tradition to decorate the graves of fallen soldiers. But it wasn't until 100 years later, time moves slowly sometimes, U.S. Congress voted to make Memorial Day a federal holiday and officially called it Memorial Day. So some of you living in the U.S. that have a few gray hairs may just remember it being called Decoration Day. Now the video I mentioned and shared the link in the chat window below is a video without a spoken word, about two retired military men, one from the Army, the other from the Navy. You see, they live in the same retirement community. They belong to a community of U.S. military men, and yet they have their loyalties to their individual branch of the military. The video shows a bit of their rivalry first thing in the morning, day after day. I watched it very carefully and noticed it's actually produced locally in the West Valley of the Phoenix area. You can tell by the article on the front of the paper that he sits down to read. To me, this video symbolized the two holidays. A wonderful tribute to the military and their role to ensure freedom for each of us. At the same time, the sense of community, despite their differences. They even communicated and understood each other without a spoken word. Now, despite the rivalry, there was a respect and deep appreciation. Personally, I worry about what's happening in the world today, and specifically the decisions made by the various governments. It seems that rather building a stronger sense of community in the world, there seems to be more divisions. Black versus white versus Hispanic. Christian versus Muslim versus Jew. The haves versus the have-nots, or the rich being despised by everyone else. There was even a recent article about France implementing a one-time personal tax on French residents that have assets over a million euro. Now, the result of that tax would be those people would be paying over 100% of their income. Rather than building a sense of community, I suspect some of those wealthier French residents, the ones that have worked to accumulate assets to ensure a better retirement, may move to other countries and take with them their companies, the jobs they've created, and they'll spend their money somewhere else. Now the Wealth DNA radio show is intended for everyone, so there's no filter on the internet connection to bar various religious groups, nationalities, races, sexual preferences. No, our goal is not to help people become wealthy at the expense of others. The show provides an equal opportunity to everyone to become wealthy. All they need to overcome three simple obstacles we refer to as wealth DNA. Now I said it was simple, I didn't necessarily say it was easy. One more thought about Pentecost, I regret we currently only broadcast in English. Well, someday I hope to change that. Today is May 27th, 2013. It's 9:09 in Phoenix, Arizona, 12:09 p.m. on the East Coast and 18:09 in continental Europe. If you're listening to The Wealthy in Air radio show, you are listening well, you are listening to Wealth Reading, not if, but if you're, you're listening to the Wealth DNA Radio Show. I'm your host, Ron Naraki. The show airs every second and fourth Monday at 9 a.m. in Arizona. Now, I certainly hope you can join us each time we air, but if you miss a show, you can hear it on the archives. Just go to wealthdna.us. We list each of the shows, both upcoming and archive, and there you'll find the shows with more detailed questions I addressed today. If you want the link to the video that I put in the chat window, just email us via the WealthDNA.us site or email me, Ron, at WealthDNA.us. We welcome your comments and questions during the show. We recommend that chat window below the radio player. You can call in, and our producer will put you through. The call-in number is 917-388-4162, and it's also shown at the top of the screen. Now, the U.S. equity markets were down last week and are closed for the holiday. Asia was mixed with Japan down pretty dramatically, about 3%. Europe is up, actually, with the U.K. market closed, and Brazil is flat. While I'm on current events, I wanted to touch on some excellent points made in a brief article by Martin Weiss of Weiss Research. The title of the article caught my attention. How long can this rally last? The gist of the article was to try to address why the U.S. equity markets keep reaching new highs despite all of the underlying dangers. He listed three reasons driving the market higher and why it's unlikely to, or why it's likely, excuse me, to continue to go higher. And I have to agree with all three of these. First, flight capital. In essence, investors around the world are flocking to U.S. equities not because the U.S. economy is doing particularly well, but because of the dangers in many other economies. And all I have to mention is Greece, Italy, and the Middle East, and you probably know what he's referring to. The second reason is the nothing better syndrome. The interest rates are extremely low right now, so investors needing income are flocking to high quality and highly yielding stocks as an alternative to bonds. Third reason, central bank money printing. Not only is the U.S. Federal Reserve printing $85 billion per month, that's a billion with a B, on a per-GDP basis. If you recompute based on the GDP of Japan versus the U.S., Japan is printing twice as much. And in Europe, where they were talking about austerity for the longest time, we see signs that money printing is hot and austerity is not now, I have to agree with uh, his three reasons that U.S. equities have been heading higher. and It very, very clearly appears they will continue, potentially, through year-end or until some major world crisis hits. Now, part of my mission today is to address his second reason, the nothing better syndrome. There are alternatives to bonds other than U.S. stocks which are now at a level 145% higher than they were in March of 2009. Obviously, each of us who has invested in U.S. equities during those four years is glad we did. But is this time to continue to put more money into U.S. stocks? Now, the first commandment of investing would say that if we bought when it was low, we should sell when it's high. That's my segue into our main topic today, non-bank financing, creating your own investment. Why would you want to create your own investment? It's much easier to put your money on Wall Street, the city of London, Frankfurt, or other exchanges or bourses around the world. Well, one thing is for certain, the executives who work for those financial companies and exchanges will have very nice bonuses if you continue to invest in those financial markets. Now, when Matthew Tuttle was on a prior show, he mentioned that true diversification requires being in alternative investments. Too many people feel they're fully diversified by holding a variety of stock and bond mutual funds, plus some reserves in a money market account. On that show, Matthew and I discussed the outstanding investment performance of the large university endowment funds, and that was the topic of his book. Incidentally, the Yale Endowment Fund is up about 100% over the last 10 years. How has your portfolio done from 2003 to 2013? Now, in many ways, we could say that's been an excellent period for investing, especially in equities, since we had a very, two very strong bull markets from 2003, and then we had another recently, and we've only had one bear market in between. So, two, bear, two uh, bull markets, one bear market, that's a great period to make money in. I haven't had a chance to compute my own investment returns uh, during that time. I've been too busy creating my own investments for the last six years. Now, I know I had some excellent years in 2003, 4, and 5, and some pretty good returns in the last few years, although I lost a great deal during the Great Recession, and I suspect many others did. Since I didn't have sufficient number of short positions, or I closed those short positions way too early, Now, I recently learned that only 6% of that Yale Endowment Fund is in stocks and bonds, and that stocks and bonds are actually a very small percentage of the world's investable assets. So, to be truly diversified, we need to have exposure to other asset classes as well. Of course, we've dedicated a lot of shows to alternative investments in the past 13 uh, months, and today we'll cover an asset class that hasn't even been defined yet. The do-it-yourself, or DIY, investments that each of us can create for ourselves. And, of course, you can partner with someone who has experience and a good track record with these investments. Now, at the beginning of the show, I mentioned we were going to relate back to our shows in April of 2012. So the easiest way for me to cover the various DIY investment alternatives is to follow the sequence of those shows which incidentally dealt with investing in real estate. Now, it turns out the first type of DIY investment is used by a fairly large number of investors, rental properties. So by starting with that one, I'm hoping the rest don't seem overly complex. And there are three popular ways to become a rental property investor worth touching on each. The first way is when you decide to Buy your next home and you say, well, I want to keep the home I'm living in and convert it to a rental property. A very good strategy since you're already familiar with the home, the roof uh, condition, the condition of the heating and air conditioning, how old the appliances are. During the Great Recession and specifically since the second half of 2006, many homeowners who were moving chose this particular strategy. Unfortunately, they picked it not because of some great plan, but because housing prices had dropped so dramatically in the U.S. and many other parts of the world, that the return on investment of renting was far higher than it would be selling that home at those depressed prices. Or, frankly, they just weren't able to sell the home because there were few buyers. Now, the second popular way to become a rental property investor is to buy a property, That might require renovation. Therefore, you buy it at a low price. You renovate it and put it up for rent. The third and far less common, not because it's a bad strategy, but because people don't realize it's an option, is you buy a property from another investor or landlord that already has a tenant living in the property, kind of a turnkey rental property. You might pay a slight premium over the other two ways, but you have no downtime or investment for or, or negative cash flow while you renovate and market that property. Now, if at the beginning of the show, um, creating your own investment sounded difficult or exotic, I sure hope this fir- first type of DIY investment gets you a little more comfortable. A rental property, well, that's no big deal. Lots of people do that. I could probably do that, too. Now, I'd like to add one more important nuance to the three three ways of becoming a rental property investor. Recall the title of the show is actually Non-Bank Financing, Creating Your Own Investment. The nuance relates to the first portion of that title. Now, if you convert your former residence into a rental property, you don't really need any new financing on that property. And, by the way, you can retain your existing mortgage, which is probably at a very low cost. It's a long-term bank mortgage. And that mortgage provides you leverage, which allows you to increase the return on your investment. Now, I'd be negligent if I didn't mention that leverage is a two-edged sword. While the property is vacant either while you're renovating it for rental or uh, one tenant leaves and you're marketing to find the next tenant, you still need to make those mortgage payments. So you actually have a higher negative cash flow when it's vacant. The bottom line, leverage increases your return, but also increases the risk or variability of their returns. When you use the other two ways of becoming a rental property investor, you have a choice of buying those properties using a traditional bank mortgage or using non-bank financing. You could be provided by a private mortgage lender or the seller of that property. Now, incidentally, there are four alternatives for that seller to provide you financing to buy that property. Think about what those four alternatives might be, and I promise to cover them all in more detail in today's show. Now, one more aspect of risk that I need to address. The vast majority of alternative investments can be made in your truly self-directed IRA. We've talked about that on the show a number of times. Due to the tax deductions and potential legal risks with rental properties, I personally do not recommend having them in your IRA. So your IRA should not own that rental property. Now, this is especially true if you're able to get financing on that property. Let me remind our listeners, you're tuned to the Wealth DNA Radio Show. I'm your host, Ron Naraki, and I look forward to you joining us every second and fourth Monday. If you've missed some of the prior shows, like the ones we did on investing in real estate or others on alternative investments, or if you want to re-listen to them, we maintain an archive of shows on www.wealthdna.us. Now, if you'd like to get an email reminder of the shows, you can do one of two things, or, of course, both. Send an email to me, ron at wealthdna.us. We'll keep you posted about future shows and events. And, of course, I can provide you the link to the Reveille video and answer your questions. Or, in the upper left side of the screen, just under the Boomer and the Babes picture, click the Follow button. You'll be informed of each of the great shows on the Boomer and the Babe network. Now, reminder, during the radio show, we welcome you our listeners, to ask questions. Now, the easiest way is to start a chat in the area below the radio player, or you can call in 917-388-4162. And yes, I do welcome different points of view and suggestions of other DIY investments you may be familiar with. All right, we've talked about the first, rental properties. The second type of DIY investment is also fairly well known, but used by far few investors than rental properties. Officially, we refer to this real estate investing strategy as buying, renovating, and reselling, although most investors just refer it to the shorthand, fix and flip. We covered this strategy in detail on our show in June of 2012, so let me just give a quick overview. You find an undervalued property, which might be due to the fact that it requires extensive innovation since no one could live in it in its current condition. Or it's owned by a lender who would much rather sell it at a price below market than to continue to own that property. You see, that property to a lender is a toxic asset on their balance sheet. That, of course, reminds me we haven't covered the five parts of the balance sheet in any of our shows yet. After finding that undervalued property, you renovate it to be better than any other house in the neighborhood and then sell it, hopefully for a large profit. The investors, whoop, oh, we're getting some music there, Pete. I don't know if uh, you hit a bad button, but anyway, started getting a little bit of music. No, nope, still, com- still coming in a little bit. Let me just make sure that you're aware of that. Um, okay, it's it's gone. All right. Anyway, I don't know why I'm hearing so much stuff today. Maybe, maybe it's, uh, I didn't drink much last night, so I don't think it's me. But anyway, you... Uh, find that undervalued property, you renovate it better than any other, as I said, then you sell it, hopefully for a large profit. The investors who make their living doing fix and flip properties earn very large returns. Now, keep in mind, the gains on those property sales are fully taxable as ordinary income. Now, incidentally, I need to mention that a fix and flip is far from a passive investment. Unless you partner with someone who manages the finding, renovating, marketing, and you're just an equity investor who brings the money. Now, all of the very experienced fix-and-flip contractors or project managers I know would not want to share the profits with an equity investor. Through their experience, they know they have higher returns by borrowing money using other forms of non-bank financing than sharing the profits with someone else. Now, you will find many fix-and-flip contractors or project managers anxious to have you as an equity partner, but there's a very good chance they have little or no experience doing it. Now, I will admit I have never considered a fix-and-flip being an alternative on your former home. See, it's very unlikely you lived in an absolute dump and then decided to fix it up for the next owner after you moved out. But under U.S. tax law, there is a very tax-efficient way to do a fix-and-flip. You would buy a home that's undervalued, valued. Excuse me. So buy a home that's undervalued, buying it to be your own home. In other words, living in it. By the way, the financing is cheaper on an owner-occupied as well. Then renovate it gradually while you live there. If you sell that home after living in the home for at least two years, the gains on that sale will be tax-free. Now, that tax-free is subject to a very high limit of either $250,000 of gain or 500000 if you're a married couple. Doing this will give you very high after-tax returns. Now, the trade-off, of course, is you're living in a construction zone most of the time. And then you're selling the home just when you get it to be the way you like it. All right, so far we've covered two types of DIY investments, rentals and and fix-and-flip. The third type of DIY investment is a hybrid of the first rental properties, and the fourth we'll talk about shortly. And it, just like others, has several variations. Now, the third type is investing in a lease-option property. Again, something we covered in prior shows. In the initial years of that investment, it's very similar to rental. But the second portion of the arrangement is you're financing a future property for your tenant buyer. Now, as I said, we covered this in June of 2012, but it's worth mentioning the highlights today, just like I did on the others. You own the property throughout the term of the lease option agreement, and therefore you're able to take tax deductions for expenses as well as depreciation. Ah, i got to love those depreciations for non-cash expenses. The key difference from rental is that your client is planning to buy the home in the future. Therefore, you have a longer lease term. That client takes better care of the property, and you could have, I do, already established a sales price at the start of the contract, in essence, assuring yourself of a profit. Now, during the Great Recession and the housing crisis, this strategy wasn't particularly popular since many tenant buyers were in a lease option arrangement lost their down payments and all equity when the landlord or investor decided to default on their mortgages and go into foreclosure. This tainted the reputation of the lease option strategy. Now, despite that, The fund I run was very successful at finding tenant buyers since one of our core strategies, people knew this is really what we do and we do it well. We have plenty of references. Our properties are far better quality than a typical rental. We have a very structured contract and an excellent rating with the Better Business Bureau. Now, the same three ways to become a rental property owner apply also for a lease option property. And I'll remind you the first way is when you decide to buy your next home, you keep the home you've been living in and convert it to a lease option property. Now, since your home was customized and maintained to the standard a homeowner would expect, it's probably even better suited as a lease option property than as a rental. Now, keep in mind, since you'll continue to own the property during the lease option contract, you can leave your existing mortgage in place. If you're eligible for refinancing at these historically low rates, I have two simple words of advice. You might want to write these down. Do it. If you're able to increase the mortgage amount or get a home equity line of credit we affectionately call a HELOC, I would give those same words of advice. Did you write them down? Do it. If that advice goes counter to what you've learned growing up, I'll remind you what we talked about earlier. Check if the people who modeled that behavior, that you learned this idea of paying off your mortgage, were those people wealthy. And secondly, listen to the shows we did on OPM back in the summer of 2011, plus the recent show we did on answers to recent questions. Both of those are great sources to change the way you think, to change your wealth files. The second way to become a lease option, uh, property investor, is to buy a distressed property or property requiring renovation. You buy it at a low price, renovate it, and market it as a lease option. The third way is far less common than even with rental properties, partially because People don't realize it's an option, and partially because there are very few lease option investors to buy a property from and that already have a tenant buyer living in it. Now, the same, but there are some, so no, don't get me wrong. They, they do exist. They're just far uh, farther between than you would with rental properties. Now, the same financing alternatives exist as with rental properties you buy. I referred to them earlier as nuances. That may not have been the best word. But a far better word is alternatives, because that way you finance your property has a huge effect on the profitability. You can buy the properties using bank mortgages, or use non-bank financing, just like with any rentals. There's one additional non-bank financing alternative you can use for rentals and lease option investing that you can't use for the fourth type of DIY investing we'll talk about shortly. What is that extra type? Well, are you ready for this? Buying the property on a lease option contract. In other words, where you are the tenant buyer. Now, let me step back and repeat what I'm getting to since I may have just confused you about you being a lease option investor and buying it on a lease option Since I have to admit, even after working on and being uh, a a fund specializing lease options, it was three years before one of the real estate experts on lease options suggested this idea. It was one of those forehead-slapping V8 moments, for those who remember those old TV ads. Here's the situation. You're interested in becoming a rental property investor or a lease option property investor. Rather than buying a property, you work with the seller for them to become a lease option investor. In essence, financing the property for you to buy in a few years. Now, one important aspect you need to include in that contract with the seller is that in addition to your exclusive right to buy the property, you also have the right to rent or sublease that property to your client. This strategy allows even investors with very little capital to become either rental property or lease option investors, since the seller is providing you financing. Now, you might initially question why you would be able to earn more from a renter or a lease option client than you're paying the seller. But consider the one common thing that all investors share. We're all optimists. Now, let me remind you of T. Harv Ecker's book, Secrets of the Millionaire Mind. I've mentioned that book several times on the show, which should be required reading for all investors. For that matter, I'd love to see this book along with a few others as required reading in high school courses on personal finance. One of the 17 wealth files that Harv Ecker shares in that book, and by the way, it's number five to help you find it, is that poor people, and recall, recall, that's his term, that's not the term I generally would use, but he says poor people, would look at this idea of buying the property on a lease option and then renting it or offering it on a lease option to a tenant buyer, they would see the obstacles. The rich person, And again, that's his word. I prefer the term wealthy or, more precisely, someone with a high wealth DNA. That rich person would see opportunity. Which do you see? Hmm. Buying on a lease option and then using that on a lease option or rental to another client. I clearly see the opportunity. And let me take my favorite strategy, a lease option option investing, as an example. So I obtain the property on the lease option contract as the tenant buyer. So on that contract, I'm the tenant buyer. And then offer that property to my tenant buyer at a slight premium. So I would have used my client's down payment to pay the seller. And my client's monthly payments would pay my payments to the seller and leave a little for me. So I am earning money each month without investing much or maybe investing anything. Now, if my tenant buyer is able to get financing and acquire the property during the term of my contract with the seller, I'd merely exercise my option at the same time my client exercised his option. What's the opportunity? Well, I would have invested using virtually none of my own cash, and earned a profit with minimal minimal investment. I would have helped the seller sell his property at a price he or she was happy with, and I would have helped my clients acquire a property they might not have been able to buy without my help. One property, three parties win. All because I saw the opportunity where 95% of the population the ones who are not wealthy, would have only seen the obstacles. Now, keep in mind, if you acquire the property under that lease option, the seller continues to own the property, and you're not eligible to take deductions for depreciation. But you are able to deduct your lease payments as well as any other expenses related to the property. Since the transaction will likely take several years, the gain on your sale will be a long-term capital gain. Now, 95% of the population would say that I'm using a loophole. The wealthy would say, I'm helping three parties win. Which do you see? The fourth type of investment we'll cover today is a bit more involved. and That's why I've left uh, at least half of the show for this. If I had started the show with this fourth type investment, some listeners might just not stay with us. They'd say, oh, I'm lost. But we'll cover four ways to create your own investment providing non-bank financing. So this fourth type of investment has four different ways to do it. The first way doesn't require you to even own a property. As a matter of fact, it's the flip side or the other side of the desk of something we touched on earlier. So let me build this one up first. When you are buying a property that you would rent out or offer with a lease option, I mentioned you could borrow money from a private mortgage lender. So picture yourself sitting across the desk from a private mortgage lender, maybe sitting across the desk from me, who's Now getting more information about you, the property, your expected cash flows, what you're going to invest in that property, what reserves you have, assets, etc. In that situation, you are buying the property using financing from a lender. And that property would become an income-generating asset, what we always call IGAs around here, so income-generating asset for you. So you've created an investment, a rental or lease option. That lender who was loaning for you to buy the property, also has a new investment created for himself. So actually, two new investments were created with that transaction. A rental or lease option property you owned, and a mortgage note the lender owned. Now switch sides of the desk with the lender. Let's say you're sitting across the desk from me. Switch sides of the desk for a moment, and you become the private mortgage lender. You create new investments which pay you a monthly interest rate secured by an investment property that's owned by somebody else. You provide non-bank financing and in the process create an investment for yourself. And you help another investor create an investment for themselves, whether it's a rental or lease option property. Or for that matter, it could be a fix and flip property. Now, for those of you who listen carefully to our show on private mortgage lending and the Learn to Earn a Higher Return Seminar, we actually had two of them on um, on the show, will recognize this is one of the strategies for investing in real estate by loaning on real estate rather than owning the real estate. We'll come back to that point a little later. Okay. Hopefully, you're now ready for the second way to provide non-bank financing for either an investor or an owner-occupant. It works for both. The second way requires you to own the property. It doesn't matter whether it's your former home or you bought it as a fix and flip. The strategy not only creates a good investment for you, which is secured and insured, it also allows you to sell the property at a premium price. Let me address this premium price before we proceed because it really is key. If you just put the property up for sale and compete directly with every other property in the market, you should expect to sell it for a market price. Now, if the number of eligible buyers would increase or maybe even double for your property, you should expect to be able to sell it at a higher price. Isn't that logical? Now, what would make your property attract many more investors, or sorry, many more buyers, than another property down the street? The answer, financing. You see, there are many potential borrowers that are not eligible for mortgage loans, either because they have a low credit score, a previous foreclosure, a short sale, bankruptcy, divorce, you name it. Additionally, many investors are not eligible for bank financing either, not because their credit worthiness, but purely because bank policy says they're not allowed to lend to companies on residential properties. Or they already have a number of mortgages uh, in their own name. And I often use an example. Let's say Warren Buffett. He's got sufficient assets and income to buy 1,000 properties or more. And would he only be able to obtain mortgages on 10 properties? Don't look for the logic. It's a Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac policy. Now, as regular listeners know, I just refer refer to those two as the evil twins. So if you offer financing with your property, you would now attract the buyers that can't buy other properties for sale. A larger number of buyers allows you to charge a higher price. Would an investor pay you 10 or 20% more than market price for a property if financing is available rather than having to pay cash? I can assure you, the answer is yes. Would an owner-occupant who wants to own a home but can't get a mortgage loan pay a premium And also pay you a higher interest rate than they theoretically would pay a bank? I can assure you the answer is yes. So, hopefully, by now I have you wondering how you can accomplish all these great things. The answer is seller financing. You, as the seller of the property, would require a down payment, of course, and then create a mortgage note at the time of the sale. This transaction should take place through a title company or a lawyer, depending on the practice in your area. The property would be insured, and your mortgage note would be insured by the title company. Now, in the unlikely event the borrower defaults, you merely foreclose and take the property back again. You keep the down payment and repeat the process. Now, let me remind you of an important point which may not have been clear earlier. If you bought the property using a lease option... You can't offer seller financing since you don't own the home during the lease option contract. Additionally, if you have a mortgage on the property, you would need to pay off that mortgage at the time of this sale. Now, if that last condition makes the deal a showstopper, don't worry. We've another couple of ways to provide non- hmm, Let's try that again. We have another couple of ways to provide non-bank financing that we'll cover next. For those listeners that just tuned in, you're listening to the Wealth DNA Radio Show. I'm your host, Ron Naraki. You can listen to the earlier portion on the archive, or if you missed prior shows, you can find the archives on www.wealthdna.us. Today, we're discussing non-bank financing, creating your own investment. We're on the fourth type of DIY investment, which may seem complex if you're just joining us. But if you go back and listen from the beginning, you'll realize there's actually a natural progression from more. Familiar investments. Let's move on to the third way to provide non-bank financing, and it works for either an investor or an owner-occupant. Just like the second and third, uh, just like the second way, the third also requires that you own the property. Now it doesn't matter whether it's your former home; you owned it as a, you bought it as a fix and flip. It has the exact same benefits as seller financing, plus a big one. It avoids having to pay off the existing mortgage. Now, before we can proceed, I need to cover some important definitions of seller financing and owner financing. Unfortunately, we don't have universal agreement yet. I'm hoping that after I give you a brief explanation of how I define these terms, you'll not only agree, you'll become a proponent of getting these definitions accepted by others. If for no other reason than they're logical. Now, generally, I suggest Investopedia is the best source for definitions related to finance and investments. It's a website, Investopedia. In this case, they let me down. They essentially define both terms the same way and even use them as synonyms. Let's start with terminology before you sell the property. So, prior to selling the property, you're both the seller and the owner. After the sale... You're the property's seller, but no longer the owner, right? Because if you sold, you can't own it. So with seller financing, the one we just discussed, that term is very logical. Since as the seller of the property, you're providing financing for the buyer, borrowers who are now the new owners. But we can't say the owner is financing since the buyer is now the owner. And they're not providing financing for themselves, are they? So the terms can't be synonymous. So the second way of providing non-bank financing is appropriately called seller financing, as I did, since you as the seller are providing the finance. Now, if someone insists that it can also be called owner financing, I'll argue, as I just did, that the owner is not providing financing for themselves. So if you insist on using the term owner financing, you need to come up with a more complicated term and say that it's former owner financing, which, by the way, is ambiguous. And why use a more complicated term for something that's appropriately called seller financing? Now back to the third way of providing non-bank financing. This one I appropriately refer to as owner financing. Since you will continue to own the property title after selling the property. Now, that might seem like I'm just talking circles, so let me explain. The best way to understand this third way of selling is to use the analogy of automobile financing. You see, with the automobiles, the financial industry has clearly separated the physical possession and ownership of the vehicle from the title of the vehicle. Now, in many countries, there's actually a card issued by the Motor Vehicle Department that represents that title if you don't have the card in your possession, you can't sell or register the vehicle. You see, the financial institution or the automobile company, whoever's providing the financing on that vehicle, retains the physical title to the vehicle, that card or the legal title, until the loan is paid off. The title is, in essence, a form of security to make sure the vehicle isn't sold without the loan being paid off. Any new buyer would not be able to get the vehicle registered without that title. Now, that exact same concept exists in real estate, but it's less universally understood. The mortgage holder on the property places a lien against the property title so that the title of that property cannot pass to a new owner without the loan being paid off, just like on a car. But you as the owner of the property, even if you have a mortgage in place, you have the right to transfer the use of the property either through a rental or a lease option contract or through a conditional ownership which is subject to the mortgage being paid off. In essence, this third way of providing non-bank financing allows you, as the owner, to sell the property but not transfer the deed or title until the underlying mortgage and any debt to you are paid off. Your buyer owns the property, insures it, pays taxes on it, and lives in it just like any buyer would. But they won't receive the full title to the property until they pay off that mortgage. Either they pay it off gradually, or they obtain new financing in their own name. It's at that second step in the process that you, the owner of the title, transfer that title to the buyers, just like with autos. There are many terms for this conditional sale. The one I use most often is agreement for sale. The generic term is a land contract. Other terms you'll hear will include contract for deed, bond for deed, and installment sale. Now, incidentally, from a tax viewpoint, this type of sale is indeed an installment sale. Just like a car loan, the buyer gets full ownership at the time the final payment is made, and the tax on the gain is spread out over the life of their payments, a key factor we'll talk about some more. Now, there are a number of key advantages to owner financing versus seller financing. Giving a choice, I prefer owner financing. The first advantage I already mentioned, you don't need to pay off your mortgage when selling the physical possession to the home, since you as the mortgage holder continue to own the title. I'll come back to that point before the end of the show. Now, a second major advantage is that if if your buyer does default, although it's unlikely, it can happen, it doesn't require a foreclosure process since you still own title. It's referred to as a forfeiture process, and the amount of time is generally much shorter than a foreclosure and less expensive. The third advantage is from a tax viewpoint, since you only pay taxes on the profit received in a, or the portion of profit you received in a given year. If you look at a typical loan amortization that you're going to set up, the amount of principal uh, and, therefore, percentage of profit being paid in the early years is absolutely negligible. In essence, you pay most of the taxes when either they pay off or re- or refinance the uh, debt to you. This is especially helpful if you bought the property as a fix and flip and you owned it for only a very short period of time. If it was your prior residence, you lived in more than two years, there's really no benefit. Just like with seller financing, if you bought the house on a lease option contract, you're not able to use owner financing since you're not officially the owner during the lease option contract. Now, the fourth and final way of providing non-bank financing is a, is a hybrid of the second and third types, or it's ways, I should say, because I use the term types for, uh, for kind of the major category. So, the fourth way is a hybrid of the second and third. I like this approach for buying a property, although personally, I wouldn't use it for selling a property and creating my own DIY investment. I refer to it as cash offer made in installments or a cash sale made in installments. From a tax viewpoint, owner financing is an installment sale. You're selling the home conditional on the buyer, making a stream of installment payments. Now, when buying a property using a cash offer made in installments, I often structure this purchase as a, at a premium price even above what I might do for owner-seller financing. I might offer 5% down or 10% down, but if I offered 5% down, I'd then offer 95 equal payments, which would be 1% of the purchase price each. The seller is secured exactly the same way as owner financing and thus has the shorter period for forfeiture if I, as the buyer, were to default. What I don't explicitly state is that while I'm making my installments, there's no interest accruing. For this reason, I don't recommend it as something you would use for selling a property and creating an investment. Although, as with any investment, when you consider creating any of these DIY investments, you should do the analysis of the alternatives. Decide which is the best for you. This might be the one. If you're partnering with someone who has experience doing this, they'll analyze the alternatives with you. Now, trying to summarize this, we've covered a lot of ground, a lot of different types of DIY investments and different ways of doing them. All of them can provide you a wonderful stream of income, potentially for the rest of your life. You may not have noticed, but the types of investments we covered were in two groups. The first group, you owned the property during your investment period. With the second group, you loaned money to someone else to buy the property. The distinction is particularly important if you want to compare the risks and returns to other asset classes you're already familiar with. If you own the property, you should be comparing that DIY investment to owning stocks or commodities, and you should expect a high return and know that your risks will also be higher. Which I affectionately refer to, by the way, uh, I'm sorry, let me back up here. Okay, so... Higher, when you own, you want a higher return, you're going to expect a higher risk. Now, if you loan on a property, you should compare that DIY investment to bonds or CDs, which CDs, of course, I refer to as certificates of appreciation and occasionally remind you that CD also stands for crummy deal. Whether you'd like those investments or not, they're all forms of fixed income investing, and therefore they have a more stable, lower return than owning. Which is better, owning or loaning? Obviously, the answer is both. You need a diversification of investments, so you need to have some of each. Now, the one thing that most financial advisors would agree on, there aren't many, is that a higher percentage of your portfolio should be in owning when you're younger, and steadily increasing percentage in fixed income as you grow older. With the investments we discussed, there will be a very natural tendency for older investors to be less interested in doing, let's say, fix and flips or managing rentals or lease option properties than being lenders, which requires far less time and effort. Now, why would you want to create your own investment? Let's go back to the fundamental question, why bother with all this? Recall the three reasons Martin Weiss said U.S. equity has been rising so rapidly and may continue to for some time longer. The first was flight capital. Investors are looking for safer places, and yet very few investors are aware of these DIY investments we're talking about today, which, unlike the paper assets in financial markets, these are insured, much like annuities are insured, and are secured, just like owning gold or any other physical asset. The second reason he mentioned is the nothing better syndrome. And here is where you, as a listener of the Wealthy and Eric radio show, have a huge advantage as you analyze the DIY investments we talked about today and compare them to the U.S. equities that everyone's flocking to. You'll see all of them do far better. Now, central bank money printing was his third reason. This might be the biggest reason you should be considering these DIY investments. With the exception of precious metals, commodities, and REITs, all other financial securities provide you no hedge against inflation, which will result from this money printing. Every one of the DIY investments we discussed today, you have inflation protection, unless you structure it incorrectly. Let's summarize these DIY investments and group them into these owning and loaning groups. I'll start with DIY investments that you own. You can own a rental property, providing you with an income stream and tax deductions for many years to come. Additionally, by buying additional properties today at relatively low prices, you'll have significant appreciation in future years, especially as the central banks keep those printing presses moving you can do fix and flip properties where you invest your time and materials to increase the value and then sell the property for a nice profit you can own a lease option property providing you with an income stream and tax deductions for two or three or maybe even five years you build in appreciation into your sale price and when that property is sold you'll do it all over again And now, the loaning alternatives. You can be a private mortgage lender, providing loans to other investors or homeowners, secured and insured. You can tailor your interest rates to the risk of a particular transaction. Second, you can do seller financing, where you take a down payment when you sell the property to the buyer, and then you hold the mortgage. You can market the property for a higher price and charge an interest rate above what banks would charge, since your buyers aren't qualified to get that low-cost bank financing. Keep in mind, if you have a mortgage on the property, it needs to be paid off to do seller financing. The next one we talked about is owner financing, which has the same benefits as seller financing, and several key advantages we also discussed. We also discussed, and this was our final one, a cash sale in installments where you would request an even higher sale price since you're not charging interest. Incidentally, just like with owner financing, you can create this type of DIY investment, leaving your existing mortgage in place. But, and this is a big but, for the protection of your buyer, you need to apply most or all of the installment payments to pay down your underlying mortgage to avoid the remaining balance of payments Falling below your mortgage amount. If that were to happen, your buyer now runs the risk that they owe you know, that you own owe more money on your mortgage than they owe you. In essence, they're upside down. So, being an ethical investor, you would want to make sure you're paying down your mortgage faster than they're paying you. Before I close, I need to mention one potential risk with owner financing and with the cash sale and installments if you have an underlying mortgage most financial institutions have a due on sale clause in the mortgage note the wording on that clause may differ between financial institutions but essentially it says you can't transfer the property or the title or any interest in the property without paying off the mortgage now ninety nine point five percent of the time or maybe we'll use ninety nine point four four the old Irish soap commercials As long as the mortgage payments are being made on a timely basis, everything will work out just fine. There is that rare circumstance that the mortgage lender could decide to call the mortgage due and payable. Now, I won't try to go through all the legal processes and precedent, but it's something I'd want you to be aware of. And lastly, I'll mention that many of the strategies we discussed can also be used for buying properties. Lease option? Private mortgage loans, seller financing, owner financing, and cash sale in installments. So much opportunity, and the vast majority of people, most of which will never be wealthy, are all following the crowd in the financial markets. Why? Because unlike our listeners, who are increasing their wealth DNA regularly, the others see obstacles while our listeners see opportunities on our next show we'll have rick gibson who runs hot ventures a venture capital firm we'll be talking about venture capital after that we'll have experts on commodities forex trading and even a guest to share some insights on the education most financial advisors and planners have in alternative investments and remember one of the best ways to increase your wealth is to tune into this show twice a month we'll share the investment fundamentals some great ideas inspire you to be as wealthy as you want to be the next Wealth DNA radio show will be aired the second Monday second Monday of, of June. Let me get that straight. Second Monday of June. That will be Monday, June 10th, 9 a.m., Arizona. Same place, same time. And remember, the archive of past shows and this show are available on WealthDNA.us. Now, if you have some comments on today's show, some suggestions or some questions, or you haven't received my emails reminding you about the show, or you want the link to that uh, video, Reveille, Send an email to Ron at wealthdna.us. So Ron at wealthdna.us. We'll keep you posted about future shows and events. Happy Memorial Day and happy investing.
0: You've been listening to Wealth DNA with Ron Naraki on Arizona Boomer Radio. Arizona Boomer Radio is produced by the Boomer and the Babe Incorporated and can be heard Monday through Friday. You can sign up for their online magazine at boomerandthebabe.com.